So thank you to everyone who came out yesterday for the, the walk and roll, represent some swag today. It was a really good event. It was great to see so many of you there. I know, I know they really appreciated us being able to partner with them in that. So it was good times. Now, today, we are continuing our series, our Lenten series, looking at Jesus' last seven sayings on the cross. Thus far, we've kind of, our progression so far has been Jesus talking about forgiveness, asking his Father, asking God, to forgive the people that were hurting him. That forgiveness became palpable in salvation, when Jesus is talking to the criminal next to him, gives him salvation, talks to him, talks about salvation, all that, and then it moves toward care. Jesus' third saying was about caring for his mother, making sure his mother's earthly needs were taken care of. That's where we've been so far, and today we're going to take a, kind of a slight turn, because those, those three kind of have a nice trajectory through them. Now we're kind of taking a turn, but before we get to that, I think we need to kind of get all on one point, on the same page, just kind of a refresher course on exactly why we're here, exactly why Jesus is on the cross. What led up to the need for this moment? So we're going to do a quick recap of kind of theology and history that gets us to this point. So, God, in the beginning, makes everything, right? We believe our God is a creator God who made the heavens, the earth, us, everything. And God calls all of that good. Several times throughout the varying creation stories, God says, everything is good, this is good, this is good, including us. God declares us, people, humans, good. Humans are made to have a special relationship with God. We're kind of set apart. We talk about this idea of the divine image. Not only that, we are put, put in charge of caretaking for this earth. We are the caretakers of creation. Along with that comes this idea of the special relationship we have with God. We're walking with God. You know, we're told, the, you know, Adam and Eve, the first humans, are walking with God, tangibly having conversations, physically being present with God. This is how we're designed to be in this relationship. As with a lot of things, we mess this up really bad. We sin, we don't do what God says, we do exactly what God tells us not to do, However, you, whatever phraseology you want to do, we mess up. When we do this, we introduce the idea of sin, of wrongdoing, of missing the mark. Now, our God is an infinitely just God, which means sin can't really be anywhere near God. God can't stand sin. And I feel like we have a hard time maybe saying God hates things, but there's a number of biblical passages that talk about God hating sin. Like Psalm 45 is one of my favorites that kind of eloquently talks about this idea. God hates sin. Sin can't be anywhere near God. So, if we were to, we can't be near God now, so for us to get to the point where we can have this relationship with God again, sin has to be dealt with. And this is where the kind of infinite justness comes in. God is just in the sense of sin can't go unforgiven, can't go undealt with, but God is also just in the once sin is dealt with, it's not going to be lorded over us anymore. It's going to be like it never happened. So that's seemingly good for us. The problem is what it takes to have sin dealt with, to have it be forgiven, to have it be atoned for, we can't do. It is too much for us as humans. 
it would destroy us physically, spiritually, emotionally, in every way possible. So now what do we do? We're, we're stuck in a situation. God is in a situation now. The situation we've put God in is we have a God who desires to have a relationship with us, who has a desire to be with us. But because of what we have done, can't. And the solution to make it so we can be with God would destroy us. Enter Jesus. This is God's infinite mercy coming in. So I feel like this kind of early story is all about God trying to balance perfect justice with infinite mercy. The sins have to be dealt with, but how do we deal with it in a way merciful to us that doesn't destroy us? Jesus. So this is how the pure wrath justice side of God is satisfied. A side we often don't like to talk about, the like vengeful smiter God. That is how that's dealt with, the perfect justice of God. That is also how the infinitely merciful side of God is satisfied. Because mercy is shown and that we are spared from this. So that's kind of what has led us all up to this point now. That has led us up to where we are at the cross. Now, so let us dive in here. So this is Matthew 27. I'm going to start at verse 45 here. From noon until three in the afternoon, the whole earth was dark. This is first verse kind of setting the stage, setting the mood for us. Some Bibles will say something like from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. It's the same thing. That is just using time and and watches of the day and night. It's equivalent to noon to three. So same idea. It's not, when I was little, I used to think it was 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., you know, that kind of thing. Translated to our time, it would be noon to 3 p.m. So that's kind of the time period that's setting up kind of roughly how long things have been going on. This has been really happening since the night before. The garden, Gethsemane, that was the night before. This is running to the next day, so we're about noon the next day. In the afternoon, the whole earth was dark. Okay, this sentence has caused a lot of kind of division, discussions, just what, what is going on here? When they say whole earth, are we talking about the entirety of the globe? Are we talking all the continents, everything? I would lean toward no. I personally would lean toward this is kind of a regional idea of everything around us. This and everything we can see this entire region. I personally think of this as kind of like a Lion King type thing. You know, everything the light touches. That's a really kind of small area. But to them, that is the world. That is everything they can see. So, again, there's no... Biblical evidence one way or the other. This is because this is how I would tend to view this one. And then how dark are we talking? Is this like total darkness? Are we talking like an eclipse is happening? Maybe. We have no like, if, if for me it's always fascinating to watch varying kind of movies or depictions of it because some of them do go full eclipse and others will take the other approach which is kind of this semi-darkness, a really bad storm rolls in. You know, like we have this really bad thunderstorm that kind of blocks out the sun, and it's kind of dark and hard to see. Which one are we going? Which one's happening here? We have no way of knowing. We, we don't know. It's, I personally tend to lean toward the storm idea, because I think, just in my head, from a thematic perspective, I think that fits with a lot of cool things, but we have no idea. So all of this is just kind of setting the mood of where we are. If this was kind of screen directions in a play, 
it would be kind of right now the the lights are starting to come down we're starting to focus in this is kind of cueing us into the mood things things were bad before we're about to fall off the cliff here so then we move in to verse 46 at about three jesus cried out with a loud shout elahi elahi lama sabachthani which means my god my god why have you left me now the language here most people think that this is hebrew this is not hebrew this is actually aramaic um, aramaic was the everyday language at the time hebrew around this time was very rarely spoken anymore you might think of it kind of like the equivalent of latin like if you are in the catholic church or something a lot of times when you read stuff it's in latin this was the, would have been the equivalent of Hebrew here. The only time it really would have been spoken would have been in reading the Torah. It would have, they would have read it in Hebrew, talked about it in Aramaic. So Aramaic was just kind of the everyday language Jesus would have talked with everyone. So this is just kind of common tongue. That's what's going on here. Now, what is Jesus saying? Does anyone happen to recognize this phrase, this quote? Does anyone know where it's from? I don't expect anyone to because it's kind of a random poll, but does anyone, anyone know? This is Psalm 22.1. So the entirety of Psalm 22 is an extended crucifixion prophecy. The entire psalm is about Jesus on the cross. And I think there's an important distinction, and we'll kind of touch on this a little later, but something kind of that hit me kind of going through this. Oftentimes, especially like when I was younger, I would read something like this and think, Jesus is quoting Psalm 21 because he knows it's a prophecy about him, so he has to quote it here. I think we kind of sometimes have that mind, and you'll even see that sometimes in the text, you're like, Jesus did this to fulfill the prophecy that was said. And Hopefully, I'm not the only one who thought this a lot of times, that Jesus is doing it, has a checklist of like, all right, I have to say this here, I have to say this here, I have to say this here. I kind of don't think that's what's kind of happening here, because then you get in this like whole meta discussion of, is it prophecy if someone says, I have to do this, and then I know I have to do this at this time and then do it? Is that prophecy? Is it not? Um, I think what is, for me, the takeaway here is Jesus is living in this moment. Jesus isn't thinking, because think about everything he's gone through the past couple weeks, the physical, mental, emotional turmoil going on in Jesus. I very much doubt in this moment Jesus is thinking on the cross, I have to quote Psalm 22. I have to quote Psalm 22. This is just naturally what he's feeling. This is naturally what is coming out of him. My God, my God, why have you left me? Other translations will say, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? All get at the same idea. I hope I scroll too far here. So what, what is happening? I think it can be really hard for us sometimes to think about God abandoning Jesus. Because God, God doesn't abandon anyone, right? That, that, that's what we talk about. That, that's one of the greatest things about our God. But in this moment, Jesus feels abandoned. And I think there's two things kind of at balance here. I would argue, even in this moment, God never stopped loving Jesus as a son. But in this moment, when God looks at Jesus, sees Jesus, 
God's not seeing Jesus the Son. God is seeing Jesus the bearer of every sin. God is seeing pure sin when he looks at Jesus right now. So this is kind of this balance of God's divine perfect justice meeting God's infinite mercy. This is where it's coming together, right here. To restore the balance that we as humans messed up, sin has to be dealt with. Sin has to be punished. And so in this moment, Jesus was being punished as if he had committed every single sin that would be committed. Every single sin I have done, you have done, anyone you know has ever done, God is looking at it on Jesus at this moment. So we often maybe hear people say, you know, I don't think God could forgive, could look past what I've done. I've done too much wrong for God to be able to accept me. And in some ways, you're kind of right, because God can't look past the sins you have done. They have to be dealt with. They are separating you from God. But we're not the ones that have to deal with it. We're not the ones that have to face that. They're being dealt with right here. They are being punished right here. They are being forgiven right here. In this moment, the full measure of God's wrath is about to be poured out on Jesus. In this moment, Jesus is alone, separated from his loving Father. And Jesus is being treated this way. Jesus is being treated as if he had committed every sin so that we could be treated as if we had lived Christ's perfect life of righteousness. Christ's righteousness is being transferred to us in this moment. And I think... Yep, okay. I switched it this morning, I forgot. Um... In this moment, this kind of idea of pure isolation is something that I, I think we can have a hard time kind of understanding sometimes. And so I found a clip from, actually, honestly, one of my favorite Netflix series. It's really, we, we talked about it last year, Haunting of Hill House. It's really good. Um, I want to show a clip from it and just kind of set it up. If you recall, this is about a family. There's a number of siblings that the youngest sibling has died, Nell. And they kind of are all gathering back together to mourn her at her funeral, all that. And the other sisters and brothers, they're they're together. In this scene, not her, the one that will flip to in a second, um, the lady doing the main talking is a sister named Theodora, or Theo. And in the show, she has the magic power of if she touches someone skin to skin, she gets flashes of their life, but more importantly, can feel all of their emotions. And so when she comes, sees her dead little sister, the first thing she does is she grabs her hand. And then here she describes what happened afterwards. So for you on the live stream, I'm gonna, we're gonna mute the audio and kind of zoom in the camera so you can't see, because I don't want Netflix sending the bent neck lady from the show after me, so We'll be back in like two minutes, okay. Be back, okay, good. So to me, that is one of the most powerful descriptions I've ever heard of 
being separate, being isolated, feeling nothing. And I'm a little sad because that clip goes on to have, I think, one of the most beautiful Jesus metaphors I've ever heard. She kind of continues that clip talking about there was someone in that darkness there that was like a buoy that pulled her out of it. But I can't show it because she drops like eight F-bombs during that. She gets really angry and impassioned, so I can't show that. So and I don't know if I'm fully allowed to recommend you go watch that yourself because it is profanity-laden, but it is powerful in how she describes that I'm floating, sinking in absolute darkness, and then I saw him, and he pulled me up to the light. And so in this moment, we can only imagine, obviously, but I have to think this is what Jesus is feeling. This is the absolute first time ever, before time was made, that he is not sitting in the love of the Father, that he is alone, isolated, embracing for the full wrath of the Father. And I think Jesus' reaction to this really paints his picture for me. Because if you recall last week, we talked about kind of the physical pain Jesus would have been in, the suffocation going on. We talked about when he was talking to his mother, it was, had been a very quiet voice. Physically couldn't do much. Notice what it says here. With a loud shout. Everything Jesus is feeling is coming out in this emotion right now. Everything. I might argue that this is what Jesus feared the most. The physical pain, everything going on, I'm not diminishing that at all because it was ridiculous. It was intense. It was unbearable. But this, Jesus at the garden saying, if it is possible, Father, let this cup pass from me. Sweating blood, just absolutely in agony. I would argue for this moment, for the moment when he knew I will be absolutely and utterly alone. No one will be there with me. No one will be there for me. Absolute, utter loneliness. And I, I'm going to pull in another analogy here. I love some of the early depictions of hell. It sounds weird to say I love the depictions of hell, but I love kind of what they represent. So if we think of hell now, what do we think of? What comes to mind when you think of the idea of hell? What? Yeah, no. Well, most often we think of fire, right? We think of fire, burning, all of that. That is a relatively modern construct of what we think hell is. And I will kind of just jump and say the Bible gives no description of hell. So this is all just kind of our imagination, what we construct hell to be. Many of the earliest constructs of hell were the exact opposite, painting them as a frozen landscape. Uh, maybe one of the most famous depictions of hell from Dante um, depicts as Dante is going down, circling down the nine circles of hell. He gets, as he goes further and further down, it gets colder and colder until at the bottom depths, everything is frozen. There's no light, there's no warmth, people can't even move. They're just stuck, frozen, can't talk. They're just existing. And so for Dante, his kind of reasoning for this was, he reasoned that the deepest isolation, the deepest punishment, is to suffer separation from the source of all light, all love, and all warmth. So for him, that's why, in many early depictions of hell, that's why they picture it as a frozen landscape. 
is it is a place that is wholly separate from light, from love, from God. So there can be no light. There can be no warmth. There can't be anything there except frozen, stasis, stuck forever. So that's just kind of this idea of being separate from God. So all of this is swirling around. All of these emotions, all of this fear is happening in Jesus in this moment. What does that mean for us? How does this spin forward for us? Well, what it means is this should have been what happens to us. This should be us. This should have been our destined fate. But it's not. The pain Jesus went through, and yet worse, the isolation Jesus felt, is what we should have felt. But, as we talked about earlier, Jesus did this out of love, so we wouldn't have to feel that. Jesus was fully and utterly abandoned so that we would never have to be. I think there's a lot of movies that depict the physical pain of Jesus. Some of them kind of go to extremes to depict it. Very few depict this emotional turmoil, the emotional fear of isolation. And I think that's the substitution that means the most. That's the price Jesus paid that means the most for us. Jesus, in that moment, was the true substitute for us. Took full isolation, took full separation, took full wrath, so that we wouldn't have to. So now we can never say, well, I'm too bad. I've done so much wrong, evil in my life. How could I be forgiven? It's already been forgiven. It's already been dumped out on one person. Now, that's not a license to just be like, I can do whatever I want now. No, that's not what that means. But it means anything you've done in your life has already been paid for. That isolation, that separation from God has already occurred. It's already been dumped on Jesus. Jesus took this isolation so that we wouldn't have to. So we've talked about numerous times. We are a group of people, we as humans, that are not meant to be alone. And a lot of times we talk about that in context of community, which absolutely is true. But now this is in context of our relationship with God. Jesus became alone, became separated from God, so that now we never have to be. We can always have that relationship with God. We can always have that bridge, have that hand reaching out to pull us out of that nothingness, to pull us out of the ocean of black nothingness. And I think that is an amazing gift. That is the greatest gift. That is what we are kind of celebrating leading up to Easter. That's what the Lent season is about, the anticipation of the remembrance of that gift. Join me as we pray.